I'm Anna. Welcome back to the K-12-ish podcast. Today, I'm joined by Matt Barnes, who is the co-founder and parent coach at The Education Game. Thank you so much for joining us today, Matt. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah. So I thought I'd kick it off with a question. I recently saw a LinkedIn post of yours where you described yourself as weird and your approach to education (laughs) as weird. What does weird mean to you? Yeah. (laughs) I'm weird on a number of levels. Let me just be clear about that. <laughs> so the way I look at education is weird. And um, well, first off, it's informed because I have been on the board of two universities, a uh, bunch of uh, pre-K through high school uh, schools as well. And I have come away with this realization that, that normal is broken. Um, in every environment, there are so many obvious problems that corrupt actual learning that um, now when I say I'm weird, I say, I wanna do something that's really different because it works for kids. And so for me, that's just being weird because normal's broken. I do not wanna be normal anymore. I wanna be weird and I want weird to become the new normal. And that looks like things like, I don't know, wild things, radical things like a child learning something that they're interested in, right? Oh my, <laughs> that's like, that's, that's so rare. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's funny to even kind of think about that. Another weird thing would be, you know, um, a child not having to learn on the schedule that the school sets. They could learn math or they can learn how to read or whatever on a schedule that works for their personality, their, their development. Another weird thing would be um, kids not being labeled as failures, right? They're just labeled as, hey, you haven't mastered this yet, so we're going to give you more time. These are things that are so normal in every other place that we kind of spend time, but in education, it's weird. So that's why I'm weird. Why do you think it is weird in education? Oh my goodness. How many hours is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> How many days can we go on this? Right, so I'll give you the, I'll give you the two minute answer. Um, why is it weird? It's weird because at its core, education in America is led by politicians. That's why it's weird. And politicians are thinking short-sighted. They, they don't care really, fundamentally, they do not care about anything else but getting elected. And for them, getting elected means telling their constituency that they will solve their problems. And so the constituency feels um, placated. And by the way, I ran for school board in the seventh largest school district last year, and I saw this up close. I saw the, the rot in education at the, at the highest level. Um, but when you have those folks that are making decisions about what curriculum is going to be um, you know, enforced, what compensation is gonna be given to teachers, um, uh, you know, what, are, what, are the, what are the goals that we will set, then that leads to all these downstream effects because whatever is measured becomes um, the thing that everyone focuses on and standardized tests is what everyone is focused on now and that rots the system from its core. And so your work with the education game is trying to change the structure of education. Yeah, absolutely. So could you tell us a bit more about what the education game is, how you founded it, and what its mission is? Sure. So <clears throat> after, um, after running for school board last year and seeing how many adults 
really only cared about adult issues. They didn't really care that in my in my district, 30% of the kids are reading at grade level uh, by third grade, three zero. When you disaggregate that by black and brown boys, you're looking at 10% reading on grade level by third grade. They didn't care about those issues. They cared about contracts. They cared about um, pay. They cared about uh, keeping standard practice in place. So uh, at the conclusion of that, after spending God awful amount of time knocking on doors of families and, or homes and talking to people and, um, and after going through a bit of a like depression after realizing just how rotten this whole structure is, I came away and said, all right, the, all these conversations with families taught me that what has to happen is not me winning a school board election and trying to fix it from the top down. What has to happen is parents becoming really clear on how they can move the system from the bottom up. And it's not, in my view, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be like a campaign. It's going to be a thousand, a million parents making small decisions all aligned in a similar direction. As an example, um, one of the things that we're going to start talking about in January or February is teaching parents how to opt out of standardized tests, right? We're going to take a ton of fire and flack from educational insiders, but um, that's an example of how parents need to learn that their ability to work individually for their child's best interest, but as a unit moving in the same direction, will force the system to change. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. In fact, I'm working on a, a pod or blog and podcast right now about um, uh, uh, learning pods. Learning pods are now talked about as this new thing. My kids have been learning in a learning pod since they were born because a learning pod is anytime one or more parents get together and strategically develop their child's learning, right? That's a learning pod. It's, it can be a basketball team. It can be a, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, uh, church group. Those are all forms of learning pods. Grandma who, who shows up at your house to watch your child uh, during the uh, latchkey hours, that is a form of learning pod. But most parents don't think about it as an intentional learning opportunity. That's why there's no reading that happens at a basketball practice. That's why grandma usually turns the TV on uh, when, it's, when the child comes home. They don't think of themselves as a part of the learning team. And so with the education game, we talk about parents being the head coach. They are in charge of the child's future. And everyone else is now an assistant coach working for them. And the parent's job is to make sure those assistant coaches are as prepped and as clear about the parent's goals as humanly possible, because the parent is going to drive that until such time that the child can drive it for themselves. So that's our work. We try to make, help parents understand how to build learners uh, so that eventually that student, that young learner can become the owner of their own learning. That's our goal. So one of the things that that brings to mind when you talk about standardized tests, for example, because I remember I, uh, I used to work for a company that specialized in education standards and trying to find new ways to roll those out that in more equitable ways that didn't result in high stakes assessments. But one of the challenges with standardized tests and people opting out was often that it was like white affluent families. And so we were talking about this earlier, how you were giving a, a 
a speech or connecting with parents from uh, the Middle East, North Africa region in, yeah. um, in Houston. So I'm just curious, when you talk about the education game and reaching out to more parents and, and teaching them about learning pods, teaching them about options they have in their students' education, how are you trying to reach a diverse group of parents? Good, good question. Um, is this going to be a video podcast or is it an audio? Because I want to show you a picture if it's audio. I'm sorry, if it's video. Well, we do it on YouTube as well. So our YouTube listeners could get a, a okay. special well, I, benefit. If, okay. For those that are, uh, and, and I did a, a video on this a while back, but there are, again, the question you're asking is like, how, how does this work for all families? And, and frankly, every, every family has a different circumstance, but I've seen there's kind of three patterns that emerge. And for the listeners, if you think about a, um, a bell curve and you divide that bell curve up into three sections, you've got really three unique populations. You've got what I call group C, group B as in boy, and then group A. And group C are the parents who, you know, the term I call are um, hope lost. These are families who uh, through a lot of educational policy and, and a lot of history, have given up on the on the idea that education is going to work for their their child, and they are uh, discouraged and they kind of quit. and And you see those families in in most schools. Then you've got on the other extreme, you've got Group A parents. I call them the hope fulfilled. Well, I'll just hope fulfilled families. Uh, these are the families that are the uh, more affluent that you're describing. They kind of understand the system. Uh, if their child's not doing well, they can bring other resources to bear on the system and, and make sure their children are doing okay. But then everyone else in the middle, the group B, these are the what I call hopeful parents. These are the parents who they believe that their child can have the best shot possible. They believe that the system can work for them. My job is to segment each of these populations because, uh, you know, not knocking on the door in my neighborhoods, the folks in group C they were the ones that were the most likely to say, it's not going to matter who gets elected. It's not going to matter. You're, you're not going to fix anything. And I said to them, you're right. I won't, but I'm going to help you fix stuff. Now, if you want your child to have the best shot, I'm going to help you do it. You're going to have to do the work. And, and some of them would start to hear that differently, right? For group B, for them, I'm trying to help them understand that the system doesn't work they cannot trust that the system that just dropping their kid off at school and their child getting A's and B's, that that's preparing a child for their future. It is not. And in many cases, now I'm preaching, so give me, give me a microphone, I'll preach. And Anna, sorry about this. But um, most of these kids, you know about great inflation, right? Most of these kids are getting A's or B's, but you, just, you, give them, you send them to a more competitive school and they're getting D's and C's in the same, like, same subject, right? Most parents in the group B have no understanding of that. They don't realize how variable educational quality is, how, how arbitrary uh, grades actually are. And frankly, they don't understand how um, out of date most of the curriculum is. So, so each group, I have to have a different conversation. And so when we start to work with a parent, our first goal is to really segment them. Who are you? What do you believe? And then we start working with help, helping that parent build a plan from wherever they are. Without a plan, no parent is going to help their child 
get to a brighter future. There has to be a plan and that plan has to be grounded in reality, not in kind of these, uh, you know, pie in the sky beliefs that education is a common good just because we've said that enough. So I, I'm preaching, but I hope this is making some sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you're reaching out to these parents, I mean, education is, it's super complicated. And I don't think people fully realize that, but as, as parents go about and they're trying to think about, okay, how do I get more involved in my student's education? For example, how do I set these goals? What advice would you give them to make it a more manageable process for them? Okay. Well, first I would, I would want to ask you, which group do you want to focus on in that question, A, B, or C? Let's do B. Mm-hmm. Okay. To, so group B, again, these are the hopeful parents, the parents that trust that the system's going to work for them. So how would I make uh, education more manageable for them? One, I would actually start by challenging one of the things you said, that education is super complicated. Um, well, the, the school system is super complicated. Learning isn't so complicated. Kids want to learn. They are curious. They are hungry to learn. But schools with some high degree of effectiveness kill that curiosity. So what I would say to a parent would be in that hopeful category, um, let's define what your hope actually is. Group B parents usually say, I want my child to go to college. Great. Um, Tell me what that means for you. Why does that matter? Well, because they will have, again, group B, these are like a lot of immigrants in this uh, population, a lot of um, you know, a lot of low-income families that are still uh, kind of hopeful, right? Um, they believe that college is going to get them the best shot possible. So then we start unpacking that. And we say, all right, you want to get your child to college. Um, well, let's first off, let's define if that's actually your goal. So what I ask him, one of the questions I ask is, all right, of the three um, uh, measures of success, that your child could have, I want you to pick which one you actually want. Do you want them to, to go to a great college? Let's say a great college for free. Do you want them to have uh, a, a great career that's very lucrative? Or do you want them to be a child of high character? And guess what? 100% of the families say, I want a child of high character. Okay, so college really may not be the goal. Character is the goal. College becomes now an afterthought or almost like a symptom of a person of character. But frankly, a lot of people of high character, they may not choose to go to college because they don't need it, right? They may start their own business at 15. They may, um, you know, they may apprentice someplace, right? So we, we're trying to, to unmask the myths around what educational success looks like. And once we can get a parent to go, yes, character actually matters more and character is what I'm going to work on. Then we work backwards and say, what does character look like in a five-year-old? In a five-year-old, that may look like, you know, learning self-control. Um, it may look like, um, um, you know, learning persistence. It may look like empathy. These are things that actually are not taught in school. They're not, uh, they're not valued over like, you know, standardized tests, but these are the foundations of learning. So for that family, I would want them to reshape what success looks like for them and their child, and then to begin building the tools and the, and the practices at home, because it's not going to happen in school, practices at home that can start to get that child into, into a different kind of place. 
right? Yeah, absolutely. So what does this, because not all parents, for example, potentially have the ability to like both parents might be working, for example, Mm -hmm. just to be able to afford to raise their kids. Like for some families, that's a requirement. Mm -hmm. So how does that look like in play then for those parents? How do you make that? Because I think this is such a fascinating way to approach education. So how, how can we make this tangible to all parents? So again, for the last 10 years, and I guess we haven't talked about this yet, but for the last 10 years, I've been working as a parent coach. And that has brought me into kitchen tables and food courts and church lobbies, talking to parents, thousands of families. So you started by saying not all parents can. I'm going to really push on that, Anna, because every parent I've met, every single one, including the, the mom who's recovering from drugs at the local um, um, drug treatment center, everyone has more capacity or has capacity to do, do more than they are. And every parent wants to do more, but they don't know how oftentimes. And, and also they don't know the urgency of it as well. So the first point is every parent can do more. The question is what more can they do, right? So that's the first part. Um, secondly, every family has a network of neighbors, of you know, grandmamas, of abuelitas, of you, know, you name it. And those folks are rarely brought in to the practical aspects of developing a learner. So if you're a low-income mom, single mom, and you're working two jobs, uh, first question I would ask you is, do you go to church? And if she says yes, I say, okay, your next job, don't worry about, don't even think about school. Right now, your job is to build your assistant coaching team. And that means you're going to be now thinking about, and I'll help you think about who are the families at church or the grandparents or retirees, whomever, who um, have capacity to help you come alongside you in the learning plan for your child. They then now are your next move. Don't worry about teaching your child to read. Create the structure where you're now going to have more capacity, right, to do more, uh, not necessarily you doing the work but getting the work done. That's what an assistant coach does. They do the work that you can't or are not prepared to do, right? So that would be a really simple example of how I would immediately activate that mom towards thinking more strategically rather than you know following the plan that, again, the school usually sets out. Yeah, so when you talk about, because you mentioned you're a parent coach, and I just find that such an interesting um, way to describe what you do. So mm-hmm. How And you said you've been doing this for 10 years. Yeah. What made you, I guess, at what point did you realize that you wanted to start coaching parents? Like at what point, what, because that's not a, a traditional job title, right? So like what, <laughs> what put you on that path? Well, like I mentioned earlier, I'm weird. Um, but here's, it's a, it's a actually really interesting and long story. I'll give you the high points. Um, I used to be an executive at a hospital when my son was born, um, this is now 18 years ago, I had this crisis because now I have a black son that has entered the world. And 18 years ago, it, it caused me to, like I celebrated my son's birth, but like hours later, I was like, holy crap. And we didn't know the gender until he was born, right? And so I was like, I really got nervous, right? 
Um, and this was all, of course, before all the, the you know, video documentation of, of, uh, of, of shootings and that sort of thing. But I knew that there's a problem, right? You can't, you can't not growing up as a black man. Um, and so a year later, I decided to quit my, you know, leadership job at Texas Children's to stay uh, at home with my kids. Then I got into philanthropy a few years later, um, and I began doing research on the outcomes of boys of color, because this was a real area of passion for me. And all roads kept leading back to that which we already know is the central need, and that is parents to get activated. If, a, if you haven't, and there's so many stories about this, like the activated mom who you know, fights off drug dealers that are, that are trying to get to her boy, right? I mean, th those stories are like almost common, right? So at that point, I said, all right, all the top-down changes that we're trying to pursue, um, they don't work unless mom is there. And, and ideally dad, but in most of the low-income communities I've worked in, dad's not around. Um, he, he could be, um, and there's a role there, but usually he's, he's, uh, he's distant. So for me, I got into the space back from the back door. I also, though, had been serving on university. I served on two university boards. And did I mention this already? I can't recall. Yeah, right. you, you did mention that you were at the university okay. level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, those things taught me, again, the systems are broken. And so I said, all right, if we want to fix education, fix kids and their pathway. We got to get to mom. Uh, and so then I began to just, um, you know, walk around and knock on doors and speak at, at, at uh, churches and speak at, on the radio and, and people started finding me. So that's kind of how I got into it. So hearing that, because I think that's such an important thing to remember is that the, for a, especially white students who are come from more affluent families, they can afford to go to those niche schools that do really an excellent job of educating students. Yes. For the majority of kids, they're put into public school systems that, that fail to support them, that just try to push them from grade to grade, put them under standardized tests so that they can yep. just meet minimum passing and be moved on. Yep. And so I think it's really important what you do because it's giving those students an opportunity to get access to a more equitable education, to an education that actually serves them. Hmm. And so the last question I wanted to ask you before we go to kind of that the game part of this is yeah. when you like if there is a, a someone from a public school listening right now who mm -hmm. it sees these flaws, a parent or an insider. An insider, so mm -hmm. someone at the school level, and they they recognize these flaws. What advice would you What advice would you give to them to reach out to parents and try to make them more a part of their kids' education to help push beyond these challenges? Yeah. So the I, I have a great respect for teachers. In fact, my my um, my mother, my grandmother, and my great grandparents were all teachers. I mean, it's like steeped in our family. And my business partner is a guy named Dr. Scott Van Beck, who was a teacher, principal of multiple schools, and then a superintendent over um, 60 schools here in Houston. So we, we, I'm the kind of the community guy. He's the inside school guy. What I would recommend is that you have a conversation with Scott uh, uh, at, you know, again, at the education game and say that's ask that question of him because he understands the pressures that teachers in particular are under. They're asked to be police officer, the mom, the social worker, the medic, 
uh, and the teacher uh, all at the same time. And now we're going to say, now you need to also be the, uh, the parent liaison, right? It, it, it's too much. So because teachers are under this pressure for standardization, standardized tests, they, they have no time. I, I'll bet you, I bet you $100. Anna will put this on the table right now, $100. That if, uh, if, if you went and talked to 100 parents or t- uh, teachers, make, let's make it 10 teachers, make it easy, 10 teachers, that nine of them uh, would choose to, if they had the option, to choose to have nothing to do with the system of education that they're a part of and to only focus on, uh, on helping meet the needs of the child. And that is what you're seeing now in, in micro schools and learning pods, that if, the, if there is a teacher involved, which it doesn't have to be, but there's an intense focus on what does the student need, teachers now are not able to even go there. They don't have the space. They don't have the encouragement or support from their leadership. Um, and again, that's, that's what Scott has taught me repeatedly. Uh, and that is not the teacher's fault. That's the system failure. Um, and that system's not gonna change until parents force the issue and make the change happen. I think that's critical because it's like going back to what you said about standardized tests. If enough parents start opting out of them, it doesn't make sense to give them anymore. For example, that like, it has to come from the parents taking ownership. Bingo. Nobody can argue with a parent over any decision they make for their child. If it's informed, it's gotta be informed. And again, that's what we try to do is make sure parents are making informed decisions, not just willy nilly, you know, fly by the seat of your pants decisions. Um, but yes, if, if parents opted out, then the system breaks and, and they can't then rely on standardized tests anymore as an example. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's a need to assess, but I, again, coming from a healthcare background, a test is a diagnostic tool. It tells you where you need to work on stuff. That's all. It is not something to punish the doctor or the nurse or the parent or the child. It is to understand where they are. And then you can make some adjustments as a result. And we've gotten completely backwards on that in education. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. for this last part of the interview, I wanted yeah. to transition to a game I put together. It's just awesome. four questions called the Education Game Show. Um, I tried to theme it off of um, off of game shows. We'll let you and the audience be the judge of whether or not I did a good job. So this first one, I took some inspiration. Wait a second. Hold on. Yeah. So it's called the Education Game Show? Yes. So because I tried that's- to... Mm-hmm. Be- because of my work is the education game. Yes. So I, okay, I tried to it. do a spinoff of that. Um, <laughs> gotcha. but, okay. uh, so first one, I tried to take uh, inspiration from who wants to be a millionaire with the ask the audience. Yeah. Um, so you're speaking to a group of parents. What if you only had one question to ask them, what question would you ask them to get them thinking differently? Yes. I'm way ahead of you. Um, and I don't need to even call for uh, a, what do you call it? Uh, phone a friend here. I've got this answer. So the question I would ask is, um, parents, I want you to pause and to ask yourself and then to tell me when you played a significant role in the education of your child. Now, having asked this of hundreds and hundreds of families, what I notice is group C families and group B parents, group C and B, they will sit there and and they won't feel like they can answer the question. They don't feel like they've played any role in, in legitimately improving the educational you know, path of their child. Then I have to unpack that. And I say, did you teach them how to you know, hold a spoon? 
Did you teach them how to potty? Did you teach them how to, um, you know, bathe themselves or brush their teeth? Those are all elements that you taught them. And those are absolutely directed towards creating a lifelong learner. That's no different than teaching them how to do math or how to read a book or how to self-control. These are all skills that you as a parent have done it before. You just don't think that you can do it in an educational context. So, all right. I know this is supposed to be the fast round, lightning no. round. Sorry. No, that, that was fantastic. Oh, okay. I, okay. I think it's such an, I, I'm just thinking like back to my work, working hands-on with families, especially um, immigrant and refugee families. I just, I would have loved to have had that that skill and that knowledge to know to ask those questions because yeah. it's, I, I just, I'm, I'm really inspired right now. So next wheel of fortune, fill in the blank. So learning happens when. Oh, um, learning happens when the child defines what they want to learn. Right. And again, education in the educational system, uh, the school defines what the child will learn. The school sets the plan for what the child will learn. The child will usually execute on the learning. And then the school evaluates the learning. When a child says, I want to learn, pick your subject, right? I want to learn. I had a great conversation with a parent some time ago that said her six-year-old or seven-year-old daughter said, I want to know what's under my skin. I'm curious about what's under my skin. I'm like, oh my gosh, if she asked that question, you've got, you've got to, you've got to, you know, do whatever you can. To, to feed that, right? So now the child's defining, I want to learn about what's under my skin. Now we develop a plan as a, together, the mom and the child in this case. The child now starts to execute it themselves and the evaluation is something that the child also does. So now the child is learning how to learn about the things they have interest in and that is a skill in and of itself. That is when, it, that is when learning happens. That's great. So last question. Mm-hmm. This was like a deal or no deal style. Um, so it got me thinking about when you take risks and and make gambles um, with uh, just with different situations. So I wanted to ask you, because a lot of this work might feel risky to a parent. It's going Mm -hmm. outside of the system that they, that has been around for, for a century now. So why is risk important? Mm, Great question. Great, great question. Um, In my experience, most parents um, are, are so afraid of making a jump like I'm describing that that they will they'll tolerate a lot of indignities uh, before they before they even consider it. So why is risk important? Um, risk is important because we're not considering all the costs that are going into the current moment or the current educational the traditional model, and the costs include things like and these are high costs by the way, um, things like uh, a child who uh, associates learning with pain and suffering and unpleasant experiences. That child, once they get done with that with school, guess what? They're never going to pick up a book again, right? They're never going to, uh, someone's going to have to force them to learn like they did throughout, you know, K-12 uh, or even K-16. K um, uh, The other costs, the family costs, the, the costs of getting a child to school and following this tight regimented schedule is extremely challenging for every family, not just low income, you know, got to get this child up at 545 in the morning, you got to get out the door by 630, you got to fight with traffic, you got to take them to the bus stop, you've got I mean, all these have tos are incredibly high costs. In, a, in the future, 
education is going to be so different that those costs will not be paid. Instead, that time will be used for other things. And again, I'm writing about this right now. Um, the child will have more time to spend with parents having a conversation talk with their siblings to talk and kind of spend time with, with their siblings to find things that they're interested in and explore those things. Uh, the same with the same would be true for, you know, spending time with grandparents or neighbors or service projects or like go on and on and on solving problems in the community. Those all become possible. So the risk is really a calculation between normal and those costs that I mentioned, plus the costs of, you know, uh, kids who uh, who feel stupid because they got a C on a test that doesn't matter, right? Um, the child who looks around and sees everyone else doing something, uh, but they're just a little slower at picking that thing up. They're going to pick it up, but they're just a little slower in doing so, and they start to disengage because they they feel they're stupid. Those are huge costs, lifelong costs. What I'm advocating is those costs pale uh, by comparison to uh, to to really. Uh, flipping the script and and doing something different, um, and and in fact, uh, increasingly, I'm 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 coaching parents on how do you how do you actually step out of the school, right? Your school is now caustic. It's a um, it's a it's a it, it would be no different than if a child was living in a area of town that had uh, high pollution or or radioactivity, right? Fallout. Uh, you would encourage them to leave, and I'm now in the process of you know encouraging more parents to just say, you know what, um, pull out and let me help you get, develop a plan on how you pull out of the school or how you make a different pathway for your child. It's very radical, I know, but it's, uh, I think the costs uh, are such that uh, it's actually the smartest and the wisest uh, strategy for a lot of families. But again, every parent I would talk to is their choice of how they want to proceed. So, Wow. Well, this has been a fantastic interview. I have learned so much. I'm very inspired, not just by your work, but also inspired to get a whiteboard behind me like you do. I think that is quite the power move. Um, but it really, your work is just so fascinating. And I think it's just, Thanks. it's really important to start to look at education in this new way that you and your partner at the education game have um, put into play. So Thanks. where where can our listeners find you? Yeah, so uh, theeducationgame.com is our website. That's usually the, the starting point. Uh, we've got a podcast, um, and we're doing uh, video blogs as well, and a, and a regular blog as well. So um, that's the place to start from there. All other things will be connected. Um, uh, we also have a phone number for families who are low income. We've been really reaching out, trying to figure out how do we access families that uh, that don't tend to travel in cyberspace as often. And so we have a phone number and that number is uh, 832-210-1200, extension 1200. Again, 832-210-1200, extension 1200. We give workshops uh, with some regularity. We have a, uh, a planning strategy session with families that is free. Um, we have, it's called the uh, promise and the plan. So the promise is what you promise. You, every parent promises their child to give them the best shot possible. And now we help families develop a plan for that. So yeah, website, theeducationgame.com is a place to start. And then we'll go from there. Great. And just for the listeners, I'll make sure all of this is linked in the show notes too. So you can easily cool. just click to it. But cool. thank you so much, Matt. It's been such a pleasure chatting My with pleasure. You. My pleasure. Great talking with you and we'll see you soon.